before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. The word is defined as, quote, the act of exposing or delivering someone to an enemy through treachery or disloyalty. When we think of effective organizations, enterprises, nations, or even empires, be they benevolent or criminal, there always seems to be one consistency. All of them unraveled from within. An act of betrayal is involved. There's a quote that's often misattributed to Abraham Lincoln on this subject, but he did say something resembling it. In 1838, 22 years before becoming president and seeing the outbreak of the Civil War, he told a men's group one time in Springfield, Illinois, at what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of freemen, we must live through all time or die by suicide. End of quote. It always seems to happen that way, doesn't it? The Jews were a conquered people in 30 AD. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire and were reminded of it on a daily basis. Still, they were allowed to practice their worship of Yahweh and observe their rituals and festivals according to the law of Moses. And there were religious leaders in place to keep the spiritual order of things. They believed their only way out was for the Anointed One, the Messiah, to appear and fulfill the words of the prophets from centuries before. This man would set all things right. He would do miraculous things and raise an army that would conquer Rome itself and reestablish God's people as the preeminent people of the world, ruling a new kingdom. But how would they know who it is? How would he make himself known? That was up for debate. But one thing was for certain. They knew who it wasn't. And it clearly wasn't the son of a lowly carpenter in Nazareth. Easily dismissed at first, he gained a following unlike any other before. Rather than cause prayerful consideration, 
or reflection on their part. They saw him as a religious and political threat. If he wasn't the Messiah, he was a fraud who had to be dealt with. But thousands and thousands more followed, many with tales of healing and deliverance in their own lives. But rather than wonder if they had misperceived him, they doubled down on their efforts to discredit and ruin him. Even that didn't work. And when Jesus during Passover committed acts of defiance, the religious leaders, Jesus' own countrymen, allied with Rome so that they could dispose of him. Even one of his closest followers would become the inside man to start the process. Yeah, the Lincoln quote is quite salient to Jesus. At what point is the approach of danger to be expected? It must spring up amongst us. It is, without a doubt, the most famous death in human history. And among all the emblems of the world, none is admired, glorified, and worshipped as the cross. Some say it was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all time. It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. Jesus was innocent, not just of committing a, a, a crime punishable by death, but he was completely innocent. How is it that the death of a nondescript teacher from 2,000 years ago still affects the world today? You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible. He carried no political power. He held no official position within his own religion. Yet he managed to gain the attention of oppressed citizens, the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten, then religious officials, soldiers, and eventually the Roman Empire itself. Oh, the people love him. He's known as a healer and an exorcist. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's implying that there will be regime change. He's approachable on a human level. His death could only be described as a conspiracy of the highest order. He said that the Holy Spirit would descend and convince the world that he was innocent. Accusations are plentiful. But who is ultimately responsible? Much research of the historical Jesus has focused on this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death. By whose hand did the founder of the world's largest religion suffer and die? The Matcast proudly presents a limited podcast series with an investigation of scripture and experts, all in an effort to answer one question. Who killed Jesus. Thank you for joining us for episode three of Who Killed Jesus. My name is Matt Anderson. Politics complicate everything. And to understand the politics of God's people in Jesus' day requires a bit of a history lesson. The Bible shows us that the Israelites made constant and repetitive mistakes, often blending into the cultures that surrounded them. 
This involved worshiping other gods than Yahweh as directed in the Ten Commandments. God would allow his people to be conquered for a season, then send a deliverer to remind them of their status and urge them to live by the covenant he established. But they would inevitably fall again and again. Eventually, there was a split, and God's people became two nations, the nation of Israel, sometimes called the Northern Kingdom, and the nation of Judah, the Southern Kingdom. Israel, the Northern Kingdom, would ultimately be taken over and lose their nation status by the Assyrian Empire. The nation of Judah would eventually follow as they were captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. By the time the Persian Empire came along in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, a remnant of Jewish people were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, then the walls of the city, in order to start over. But the people of God would always be subject to the whims and conquests of greater powers. The Greeks would eventually defeat the Persians and impose their way of life and spiritual beliefs on the Jews. As before, the Jews would blend into the culture and now worship Zeus, Apollo, and other false deities. But there was always a spiritual remnant within the people of God to return to the law of Moses and live according to its principles and commandments. Thus, various spiritual zealots arose to urge the people to return to the ways of God. But like any human organization, differences appeared and the religious people severed into mainly three groups. The Pharisees prided themselves on being the strictest observers of the law. Their concern was primarily spiritual in nature, though they were not fully removed from the political world. They focused on teaching the Torah verbally to other followers and finding and establishing local houses of worship and study in which to do this. They would be holy men, but rather accessible to the people. A lesser-known group called the Essenes were also very strict in their observances of the law. They were seen as even more hardcore than the Pharisees. They believed they needed to be removed from public life and did not interact with everyday people or situations. They would have absolutely nothing to do with politics and did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Thirdly, the Sadducees were a bit of a blend of the two. They too did not believe in the resurrection or the eternal or in angels or demons. But they were also removed from everyday society, but for different reasons. They were almost exclusively focused on the political, looking for power at every opportunity. They would eventually become the wealthier sect of Judaism and basically become the spiritual aristocracy of the first century.
By the time the Romans came to power and recognized that the Jews were not going to abandon their religion, thanks mostly to the Pharisees, a deal was struck where the people of Judea would live under Roman governmental rule but still be allowed to practice their ancient religion. This maintained proper order over the territory, but how to handle spiritual disputes among them? Though there are a variety of guesses as to when it began, by Jesus' day, Jewish spiritual matters would be settled by the Council of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin comes from two Greek words meaning sit together, so perhaps it started when the Greeks ruled over the Jews. Most believe the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members, including a high priest who administered the council. The number 70 came from the book of Numbers. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Now the council would have a mix of Sadducees and Pharisees. No Essenes, as they weren't interested in such things. But by the time of Christ, the high priest was chosen by the Roman governor of the area and would serve at his behest. Now chief priests famously did not last too long as they were frequently replaced. Pilate's predecessor had appointed a man named Annas to be the high priest. Annas was a Sadducee and knew how to play political ball. He was rather friendly to Rome, which is why he served nine years, from 6 to 15 AD. He became the biggest power broker in all of Judea. Various members of his family would serve as high priest, and eventually his son-in-law, Caiaphas, would be appointed to the position by Pilate. He would end up serving almost 20 years, from 18 to 36 AD. The Sadducees would make up the majority of the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. As Jesus grew up in Nazareth, there would have been a local rabbi of the Pharisees who would oversee regular worship there. Though they were a minority of the Sanhedrin, one report says there were 6,000 of them altogether in the first century. Now they would read from the scriptures and then the rabbi would expand upon it with a sermon. Sacrifices could only be done on Jewish holidays at the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were the only spiritual leaders who were among the people. They wore distinctive robes to signify their position, but were mostly liked by the people because they were among them, whereas the people tended to despise the Sadducees because of their elitism. So Jesus would end up almost exclusively dealing with the Pharisees in his travels through Capernaum. When Jesus began his ministry, he began teaching and performing miracles, which aroused the attention of local Pharisees. As defenders and protectors of the law, they would have been provoked when, in one incident, Jesus not only made a paralyzed man walk, but forgave his sins. 
Well, these were fighting words to a Pharisee. Who is this regular dude who walks around forgiving people's sins? Of course, they completely discounted the lame man who was no longer lame. To them, Jesus was committing the ultimate sin of blasphemy, claiming he was deity. The local Pharisees had to be in an uproar as the people who followed and listened to Jesus increased. This would grow in intensity as Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth and was asked by the local rabbi to read the scripture that particular day. He was given the scroll of Isaiah and given a passage to read that referred to a prophecy of the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He handed the scroll back and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. This initially brought good news to the attendees at, at the thought of the arrival of the Messiah, whoever that was. But as Jesus further explained that he was the one promised, the audience's mood turned. His words eventually aroused them to anger. Wasn't this Joseph's kid? Didn't he run around playing with our kids years ago and now he thinks he's the anointed one? You can see why his hometown would have a hard time believing. But their anger turned into rage and they sought to give him the spiritual death penalty for his apparent blasphemy. But Luke chapter 4 tells us, quote, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Whether they realized they couldn't carry out a death sentence on their own, or more likely, Jesus was in complete control of the situation. He maneuvered his way through the crowd, but was now squarely on the radar of the Pharisees. It probably wouldn't have taken long for the Romans to hear about Jesus. Maybe it filtered its way up the ladder to members of the Sanhedrin or one of Pilate's spies informed the procurator of this new country preacher beginning to amass a following. But again, there were men all the time claiming to be the Messiah, only to see their movements come to nothing. They probably assumed the same would result. But the Pharisees seemed a bit more alarmed. Shortly into his ministry, Jesus made great pains to differentiate himself from the Pharisees, since that was who the people had most dealings with. Over the years, the Pharisees had developed an arrogance about their learning and social standing. Though not as elitist as the Sadducees, they would assert their spiritual dominance over everyday people, but their own personal lives would often be far from perfection. Jesus would do things like heal people on the Sabbath or share meals with disreputable people like tax collectors. Then he would use parables or teachings to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. 
Well, eventually the Sadducees even became interested. Representatives from both groups would do what they could to downgrade him in the eyes of the public. They would point out the rules he was breaking while ignoring the miracles he was performing. Eventually, their only explanation was that Jesus was using the power of the devil to accomplish his works. Now, who's committing blasphemy? Jesus had gone from being a Capernaum problem to being a Galilee problem to being a Judea problem. Now the religious leaders were ready, if needed, to make him a Roman problem. Their desperation comes to the fore in Matthew chapter 12 after Jesus heals a man's withered hand. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is what happens when power is threatened politically and spiritually. Here is Glenn Colley. You've got to understand that a great miracle has been performed by this Jesus. I mean, people were there. People know about this. It's going to be big. And they were, they were shaken. It wasn't that they denied the miracle. They, they believed that Jesus, that they knew about the power of Jesus. It wasn't that they denied it. It, it was that, what do we do now? Because they reason that, that if we let this man go on, he's going to take away our place and our nation. Bear in mind that the Jews right now are under the oppressive thumb of the Romans. They bitterly resent the Romans, these foreigners on their native soil in Jerusalem, but they're there. And you look around the street corners and you see Roman soldiers around. And they don't want to shake things up. And, and they're afraid that if more people, more and more people, follow Jesus Christ, there are going to be problems besides that. But besides that, the Jewish leaders wanted to be the power structure among the Jews. And, and people were leaving them to follow Jesus. Suddenly, and for once, the Pharisees and Sadducees were aligned in their opposition to Jesus. Jesus had become a confusing problem for everyone, not only the religious leaders, but his own people. On one occasion, Jesus secretly goes to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, but reveals himself halfway through and begins to teach. The reactions are stunning, according to John 7:25. Quote, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. 
Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Everything would escalate after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Verse 47 says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Well, the die was cast. The high priest Caiaphas reasoned, it's better for one man to die than for all the Jews to be in Rome's crosshairs. Jesus would be dealt with permanently. But how in the world could they arrest him and try him without a revolt of the people, let alone Rome? It would take an insider to make that happen. The name Judas means God be praised. It is the same root as the name Judah, which means worship and one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we have to believe that Judas was sincere in his devotion to the Lord throughout his travels. Yet Judas had a secret sin. John 12, tells the story of Mary pouring a huge amount of perfume on Jesus, which brings about Judas's anger. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Verse 6 says, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The opportunity for embezzlement now by the boards, he finds another way to get paid. 
In secret, he finds the religious leaders and offers to betray Jesus to them for money. He would do so at a time and place where there were no crowds present. They negotiate and agree to 30 pieces of silver as payment. Now there is debate on how much this was actually worth as pieces could mean many things. It could have been the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks today to a month's worth of wages. Either way, it was bargain basement prices to sell at the Savior. The religious leaders who have kept Pilate in the loop all along now want his assistance in the arrest. The Jewish temple guards under the command of the Sanhedrin would be bolstered by Roman soldiers just to make sure nothing got out of hand. Judas had a prearranged signal so that the right person in the middle of the night, in the dark, would be apprehended. Matthew 26. While he, meaning Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now Jesus was about to be fast-tracked. Rome actually had a judiciary process. It was quite formal, and they were very proud of it. But the religious leaders knew that the time was short in order to make this happen. Here is John MacArthur. Having arrested him that night after midnight, they wanted to rush him through a series of mock trials in the middle of the night. They had no crime for which to accuse him. There was no prosecution. There was no indictment. There was no arraignment. They had nothing except they had decided to kill him. And now they wanted to back up to find an excuse. They needed something that would sell this to the Jews who were following him and declaring him Messiah, as they had done on Monday when he came into the city and they shouted Hosanna to the son of David, which is a messianic statement. The people were on his side. Uh, they were fickle, but for the moment they were on his side. They had to find some way to turn the people against him, and then they had to have something that would cause the Romans to want to execute him, for the Romans had taken away the right of capital punishment from the Jews and held it for themselves. Matthew 26, 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Some might wonder why Jesus was silent at such an intense hour. R.C. Sproul offers his thoughts. And we are told here that he kept silent and answered nothing. You can imagine the agitation of Caiaphas when Jesus refused to answer his question. Speak up, Jesus. Answer these charges. What do you have to say? And fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, like a lamb who is led before the slaughter is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And maybe that's why Jesus maintained silence at this point, simply to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. But I think he had something else in mind. He knew what these people were doing. And he knew that whatever he said, no matter how accurate it was, no matter how sincere it was, no matter how truthful it was, that his words would be seized upon, they would be twisted, they would be distorted and used against him. Better to let these false witnesses give their testimony and Jesus stay quiet than for him to say anything that they can use against him. Matthew 26, 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And at some point during the night, Judas was filled with intense regret. According to Matthew 27, verse 1, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The Sanhedrin, knowing they could not impose a death sentence, would now utilize Pilate's authority and power to do what they could not. They riled up the crowd assembled that day when Pilate offered a choice of a prisoner to be set free, and the chief priests swayed the crowd 
into choosing Barabbas over Jesus. John 19.5 When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. I suppose a couple of sayings come to mind. So close, yet so far. Another one is... Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. I guess one can be too close to a situation and really can't see it. The religious leaders claimed they wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah on their terms. One wonders, even if their stereotypical idea of a Messiah had actually shown up with the quote-unquote proper resume and even desiring to raise an army to fight Rome, would the Sanhedrin get behind him either? Or was any threat to the change of the power structure automatically dismissed? Judas spent almost three years with the Savior and saw Jesus do far more than the Pharisees did, yet his love of money became the root of all kinds of evil. He was right there, and yet they were all so far away. As an important note, the Christian church over the last 2,000 years has had a rather bad record of anti-Semitism, and it must be pointed out. The accounts of the Gospels have encouraged the short-sighted and really evil, horrible people to commit acts of violence, arrest, displacement, and even death upon God's people over the centuries. Anyone who does such things clearly does not understand the Almighty's love for his people. 
nor the actual mission of Jesus. Which leads to this. Before any soldiers flogged or drove nails, before any Roman official tried to split political hairs, before there was any plotting of religious officials, there was an overall reason why Jesus was here in the first place. It is what put him on the field of battle to begin with. You've been listening to Who Killed Jesus, a Matcast limited series and a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or to listen to our archives, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for listening.